Welcome to Give Me Some Truth, the research podcast unraveling the fact from the fiction in the history of the Beatles. My name is Obadiah, and I am your host. In this finale episode of Season 1, I am joined by researchers and authors Chip Mattinger and Scott Riley. How are you both doing? Doing well. Great. How are yeah, you? Thanks for having us on today. Yes. Great. Thank you for being here. These two gentlemen are responsible for one of the most well-researched books in Beatles literature. Leninology, Volume 1, Strange Days Indeed, A Scrapbook of Madness, is a day-by-day account of John and Yoko's artistic and personal partnership from 1966 to 1980. Chip is also responsible for another mammoth volume, Eight Arms to Hold You, The Solo Beatles Compendium, a detailed overview of every recording made by the Solo Beatles up until 2000, co-authored with Mark Easter. I own both books and have found them invaluable to my own research. You can purchase both hardcover and paperback editions of Leninology and an updated ebook version of Eight Arms to Hold You from Chip's website, Leninology.com. Chip and Scott joined me to discuss an event early on in John and Yoko's association, whose date has caused a fair amount of confusion. The day in question took place in May 1968, when John, recently returned from India, invited underground artist Yoko Ono to his Weybridge home, Kenwood. Over the course of a night, John and Yoko took acid, recorded what would be their first joint album, Unfinished Music No. 1, Two Virgins, and consummated a new and intense romantic relationship. When, when we put the book together, we made a list of a lot of things that we wanted to verify for certain. And the two virgin state was one of those. Uh, you know, the traditional dating, I think, was May 20th out, out of Mark's uh, uh, Chronicle book. So, you know, we verified basically everything by cross-referencing different sources, as you do. Um, and we learned a lot about the publishing industry and how things would say yesterday, but it was really three or four days ago by the things, time things got syndicated and the like. So, um, but no, the, the two virgin state was top of the list. Many authors and publications attribute the recording of two virgins to Sunday, the 19th of May, 1968, three days after John had returned from New York with Paul on a business trip to announce their new company, Apple, to the world. For example, in the official booklet that accompanies the 2018 50th anniversary super deluxe reissue of the White Album, journalist and writer John Harris, who also compiled the recent The Beatles Get Back book, provided the 19th of May as the recording date of Two Virgins in his essay, Can You Take Me Back Where I Came From? In 1992, Mark Lewison provided 19th of May as the probable date in his The Complete Beatles Chronicle 
and like Chip said, this is most likely the source used by other authors. On John Lennon's official website, it ambiguously says, quote, The album is a curious and amazing suite recorded over one weekend in spring 1968 at Lennon's Kenwood home, end quote. In Lennonology, however, Chip and Scott date the recording for the first time to Friday the 3rd of May. Since seeing this date in Lennonology, I have dug into these events in my own research and believe this is the most accurate date. The focus of this episode is to examine the evidence and thought process that leads to an early May date for the two virgins recording. Of course, we started with the, the traditional date. And then when things started coming up that, that didn't align with it, I, I think uh, Cynthia's books, you know, placed that much earlier. And, you know, we just kind of chipped away by combining all these sources and saying, well, this could be a faulty memory, but no, these both really ring true. Um, and, th- and that stands true for a lot of the, the dates in the book. Yeah, that's exactly right. You have you have to start with a date that Lewison comes up with. That's always the beginning point. But then, like Chip said, every little piece of evidence that kept turning up, just eh, that didn't seem quite right. You know, the, the telegram that Cynthia sent back to Weybridge saying, oh, we're coming home from Italy place that in a strange place and John paying off Yoko's debts one day after they recorded two virgins that didn't feel right. And then starting to piece everything together with Cynthia's two trips. And all of a sudden it was like, you know, Chip, I think this is a lot earlier than the 19th. And eventually we came to the conclusion that, yeah, it most definitely was. to arrive at the recording date, we need to work backwards from other events surrounding it. In all accounts of these events, what inspired John to invite Yoko to his home was the absence of his wife Cynthia, who was away on holiday. The whole timeline hinges on this holiday. In her 2005 memoir titled simply John, Cynthia remembered that a couple weeks after her and John's return from India on the 11th of April, John suggested that she join Magic Alex, Jenny Boyd, Donovan, and Gypsy Dave on a two-week holiday to Greece. What follows is the rest of Cynthia's account of the ensuing events. Surprisingly, given my worries about the future of my marriage, it was a lovely holiday. Two weeks of Greek sun, sea, uzu, tavernas, and the laughter and companionship of the others raised my spirits. Despite my mistrust of Alex over the Maharishi episode, In Greece, I put aside my doubts as he interpreted, smoothed the way, and behaved in every way like a good friend. By the time we were due to head home, I felt so much better. On the way home, our plane stopped off in Rome where we had lunch. Wouldn't it be fun to finish the day with dinner in London after breakfast in Greece and lunch in Rome? We laughed. Let's get John to join us. Alex suggested I rig him to let him know what time we would be back. I spoke to him briefly. Hi, darling. I'll be home soon. Can't wait to see you. John's reply sounded normal. Fine. See you later. Donovan and Gypsy were headed home, 
but Jenny and Alex came with me to Kenwood to see if John fancied dinner out. We arrived at four in the afternoon, and immediately I knew something was wrong. The porch light was on, the curtains were still drawn, and everything was silent. There was no dot to greet me, no Julian bounding through the door, shouting with delight for a hug. What was going on? The front door was unlocked. The three of us walked in and began to look for John, Julian and Dot. Where are you all? I called, still expecting them to appear from behind a door, laughing at the joke. As I put my hand on the sunroom door, I felt a sudden free son of fear. I hesitated for a second, then opened it. Inside, the curtains were closed and the room was dimly lit, so it took me a moment to focus. When I did, I froze. John and Yoko were sitting on the floor, cross-legged and facing each other, beside a table covered with dirty dishes. They were wearing the terry cloth robes we kept in the pool house, so I imagined they'd been for a swim. John was facing me. He looked at me, expressionless, and said, Oh, hi. Yoko didn't turn around. I blurted out the only thing I could think of. We were all looking forward to dinner in London after lunch in Rome and breakfast in Greece. Would you like to come? The stupidity of that question has haunted me ever since. Confronted by my husband and his lover, wearing my dressing gown, behaving as though I was an intruder, all I could do was carry on as if everything were normal. In fact, I was in shock, operating on autopilot. I had no idea how to react. It was clear that they had arranged for me to find them like that, and the cruelty of John's betrayal was hard to absorb. The intimacy between them was daunting. I could feel a wall around them that I could not penetrate. In my worst nightmares about Yoko, I had not imagined anything like this. As I stood in the doorway, rooted to the spot in shock and pain, John said, indifferently, No thanks. I turned and fled. In the next chapter, Cynthia remembered that this all took place before John and Paul's trip to New York on the 11th of May. In a desperate attempt to repair the damage to their relationship, Cynthia tried to persuade John to let her accompany him on the trip, as she had in February 1964 on the Beatles' first U.S. visit. But he refused. So, if Cynthia's account of events is correct, the date of this incident had to have occurred before the 11th of May, which rules out 19th of May as a possibility. This, however, is not enough evidence on its own. As a witness to the events described by Cynthia, Jenny Boyd also recalled her version of events in her 2020 memoir, Jennifer Juniper, A Journey Beyond the Muse. During our time at the ashram, I had many deep conversations with Cynthia Lennon about meditation and her life at home. She confided in me about her concerns for John as she watched him changing before her eyes, the distance between them growing each day and becoming more obvious. When we returned to England, she asked me if she could come to Greece with Donovan, Magic Alex and me. Greece was a good distraction for Cynthia, but her homecoming was desperate. Alex and I were with her when she opened the door to their house and found John with Yoko. Following Cynthia as she walked into their den, John then lay on the chaise long, looking completely unrepentant. With his bare feet resting on the arm while Cynthia stood staring at the floor, speechless, John wiggled his toes next to where I was standing and said in a squeaky voice, Hello, Jenny. I couldn't help but smile. 
He was like a naughty child caught misbehaving by his mother. On the 16th of February, 1968, Jenny Boyd and Magic Alex's flat at 20 Westmoreland Place, where they had lived together since the 17th of August the previous year, was raided by Detective Ronald Spears. Cannabis resin was found in a pipe belonging to Jenny, but Jenny was not at home, nor was she in the country, for she had joined John, George, Cynthia, and Patty the day before on a flight to New Delhi, India, where they embarked on a transcendental meditation teacher training course in Rishikesh with the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Two months later, on the 22nd of April, Jenny arrived back to London from India with George and Patty. Without knowledge of the inspection of her flat, it must have been quite a surprise when Detective Spears appeared at her door the next day with a warrant for her arrest. The following day, 24th of April, Jenny appeared at Bow Street Court, where she was remanded on bail of £100 until the 22nd of May to give the court time to analyze the evidence. A condition of the bail was that her passport was surrendered. Cynthia and John, along with Ringo and Maureen, attended a performance of Charlie Girl at the Adelphi Theatre this same evening. This production starred fellow NEMS stablemate Jerry Marsden of Jerry and the Pacemakers. It must have been very shortly after this that Cynthia and Magic Alex began their holiday in Greece. Yeah, if you count, if, she, if you assume she left the next day, it's something like 11 days, something like that. But again, so easy to shorthand that, you know, as, oh, two weeks. But Jenny could not yet join them without her passport. When she returned to Bow Street Court a week later, on Wednesday the 1st of May, the London Times reported, Jenny Boyd, age 20, sister of Patty Boyd, wife of George Harrison of the Beatles, was told yesterday by Mr. Kenneth Barraclough, the Bow Street magistrate, that she could have her passport back. Mr. David Jacobs, her solicitor, asked Mr. Barraclough yesterday if he would allow Miss Boyd's passport to be restored to her. She wants to go to Rome this weekend, and she will give undertaking to return to the country not later than next Monday, he said. Yeah. And and that, to me, felt like, we've got it. We've got the weekend nailed down. Uh, if I remember correctly, I found it, Chip. I think it was in the London Times. And when they nailed down that weekend, like, she doesn't have a passport, but wants it back because she wants to go to Italy for the weekend. Fine, but she has to be back by Monday. It was like, there it is. So who knew that the smoking gun for the Two Virgins weekend would be Jenny's passport. <laughs> I wouldn't have put my money on that. Jenny, who had been the inspiration for Donovan Leach's song Jennifer Juniper earlier in the year, had plans to see Donovan perform on the opening night of a music festival in Rome. The 4th of May issue of Melody Maker reported that the festival was planned to run from the 4th to the 7th of May in Rome and then transition to Milan until the 9th of May. The 18th of May issue, however, reported that the festival had been an utter, complete, chaotic shambles with poor attendance, and the original four days in Rome had been curtailed to three, with the final show being held in a Rome nightclub. Surviving copies of the poster and concert program show that Donovan headlined the first day, with support from French singer Hugo Offray, Buffy St. Marie, Julie Driscoll, and the Brian Auger Trinity. In footage of Donovan's performance from the festival, Magic Alex can be seen adjusting a microphone for flautist Paul Horn, another friend from India, before Donovan launched into a feedback-ridden version of his song, Young Girl Blues. Saturday night. 
That that is a neat video clip, and I I don't know if you want to throw that link up online when you when you publish this, but it's it's very cool to see Magic Alex and that awful haircut pop in for just a second, and then back out again, and then the next thing you know, the mic that he was fixing starts feeding back, and so that just kind of cements uh, everybody's uh, recollections of Alex's skills. As if that uh, instrument that was pulled out in Get Back didn't already do enough damage as it was. In his 2005 memoir, The Hurdy Gurdy Man, Donovan remembered, In May 1968, I was booked to headline the first international pop festival at the Palazzo dello Sport in Rome, Italy. This extravaganza was planned to run from the 4th to the 10th of May, and 55 artists were invited. At the event, Julie Driscoll and Brian Auger performed a rendition of my song, Season of the Witch, in grand style, Brian blasting it out on the Hammond organ. I also recall Captain Beefheart and the boys blowing us away. My friend Tony Fouts swears that the Stones also played. The Rolling Stones did not perform, and never intended to. According to the poster and program, Captain Beefheart and his magic band were scheduled to headline on Sunday the 5th of May, but the festival did not run according to schedule. In the 4th of May issue of Melody Maker, Captain Beefheart's upcoming concert dates were reported. Beefheart was scheduled to arrive in London on the 3rd of May, play the Middle Earth Club that night, then go to Rome for the Pop Festival on Saturday, and return to London on Sunday to play Blaze's Nightclub. This report, combined with a review by the Associated Press following the Rome Festival, confirms that Captain Beefheart and his magic band did indeed play on the same day as Donovan. So you can't believe everything you read. <laughs> so Jenny Boyd could only have been out of England from the 1st to the 6th of May. Jenny was very kind to reply to my inquiry and dig out her old passport to confirm that she arrived in Greece on the 1st of May and left on the 4th of May. Both her arrival and departure are marked by border control stamps in her old passport. And, and Greece is very unique in that they had both entry and exit stamps at the time, whereas the UK does not. In her book, Jenny also includes a photograph of her with Donovan, Cynthia, and Alex that she says was taken in Greece during this trip. Since Jenny's passport indicates that the holidaymakers left Greece on the 4th of May, and there is footage of Magic Alex on stage in Rome that night, it seems most likely that Cynthia, Jenny, and Alex returned to London on Sunday the 5th of May. Cynthia's memory of breakfast in Greece, lunch in Rome, and dinner in London makes it sound like it was all in one day, but perhaps it should be taken figuratively, not literally. Yeah. And that, that's half the battle, is sorting through all the different variations. Um, I was just looking recently at Cynthia's books, and in Twist of Linen, she says they spent the night in Rome. And then in her second book, John, she says our plane landed in Rome, and that's where we had lunch. So they don't technically contradict each other, but one suggests something that the other one doesn't. So it's just sorting through all that mess and trying to decide, well, which is the accurate telling here? The following excerpt comes from Cynthia's first book, A Twist of Lenin, published in 1978, in which she remembered staying the night in Rome. My two weeks in Greece were wonderful, a total change. My mind began to unwind, the cobwebs of doubt and fear eventually began to disperse. I was happy and hopeful for the future. I had decided to banish my fears and premonitions. I wanted to be back with John again and to start afresh. All I could think of on the journey home was John and Julian and our future. 
We spent a night in Rome, and following lunch the next day, we caught a flight back to London. I kept saying, won't it be great lunch in Rome, and we'll drag John out for dinner in London. We'll make a day of it, do the jet set bit. Meanwhile, back in Weybridge, with Cynthia away in Greece, John and his childhood friend Pete Shotton were messing about in John's home studio while indulging in a tab of LSD and a few joints. In his 1983 memoir, John Lennon, In My Life, Shotton noted that Sin, by the way, was off on holiday in Greece with Magic Alex. As the evening wore on, John lapsed into a long silence, leaving me to stare absentmindedly at the wall. Suddenly, John began waving his arms in the air, making slow, swirling motions with his outstretched hands. And out of the blue, he announced in an awed whisper, Pete, I think I'm Jesus Christ. John was adamant, absolutely convinced he was Jesus. First thing tomorrow, he concluded, we'll go into Apple and tell the others. Far from forgetting the previous night's metamorphosis, John quickly got down to business. The so-called inner circle, comprising of the Beatles, Derek Taylor, Neil Aspinall, and myself, was summoned to a secret board meeting at Apple. All took their places in a state of keen suspense over the reason for this urgent conclave. Right, John began from behind his desk. I have something very important to tell you all. I am Jesus Christ come back again. This is my thing. Paul, George, Ringo, and their closest aides stared back, stunned. Even after regaining their powers of speech, nobody presumed to cross-examine John Lennon or to make light of his announcement. On the other hand, no specific plans were made for the new Messiah, as all agreed that they would need some time to ponder John's announcement and to decide upon appropriate further steps. By the time we got back to Weybridge that evening, I felt ready to drop from exhaustion. Unlike John, who thought little of going several nights running without a wink of sleep, I needed to get to bed once in a while. We lay around smoking dope for a bit, and then, at around ten o'clock, John suddenly said, I fancy having a woman around, Pete. Do you mind if I get one in? I don't mind at all, I said. I'm going to crash out anyway. I'm not about to stay up another night. I think I'll give Yoko a ring, then. So you fancy her, then? I don't know, actually, he said. But there's something about her. I'd just like to get to know her a bit better. And now's a good time to do it, he cackled, with the wife away and all. Well, I think we had to take into account Pete Shotton's recollections from the In My Life book, because he was pretty specific about, you know, his his recollections of, of interviews and the like. You know, he added text or added quotes in there from memory, but but still, his his sequence of events with the with the come to Jesus meeting, and then Yoko coming out that night. I feel like having a woman around. And Pete just decided to go off to bed. And then the next thing we know, Pete's waking up the next morning and finding John and saying, and John says he hasn't been to sleep yet. Since Pete's recollections placed the Jesus announcement on the same day as two virgins, it's not unreasonable to assume that a meeting at Apple was held on a weekday. Since Cynthia's return from Greece with Jenny and Magic Alex was on Sunday the 5th of May, then this suggests that the Jesus episode and John and Yoko's meeting took place the previous week. I think that's accurate. And the other thing that Pete said that brought it home for me was he said at the Come to Jesus meeting, it was Paul, George, Ringo, Mal, and Neil. 
no way are all those guys coming to Apple for a board meeting on a weekend. <laughs> so I think that kind of shrunk it down to it's got to have been sometime Monday through Friday. That was back when they were still excited about Apple and coming in every day. But they were, you know, we've seen from the record, they were very uh, uh, proud of their weekends and they were not going to do anything on the weekend if they didn't have to. So, you know, it's an assumption, but I think a, a pretty strong assumption that it would have been on a, on a weekday. And that's a work ethic that, that telescoped throughout John and Yoko's entire career. They worked a Monday to Friday week, with a few exceptions. You know, they, they, their, their time off was very important to them. Chip and Scott think it almost certainly happened on Friday the 3rd of May, and the whole scenario played out over the weekend. Mm-hmm. We, we don't know what time Yoko showed up at the house. It could very well have been the early hours of the 4th already. But when you go to John's line about, you know, as the sun came up, you know, we figured she had to have been there, you know, earlier in the evening as opposed to the, the very early hours of the, the uh, And also Cynthia recalls seeing a lot of dirty dishes around. So it seems like she was there for more than 24 hours, probably before Cynthia came back. Yeah, I think that's why we went from Friday night into Saturday morning for the two virgins moment into yep. Sunday because she had been there for a while. I kind of held out for a while that maybe the two virgins thing was Saturday night into Sunday. So it's a little more immediate. Mm. But I think Chip convinced me that it, yeah, probably the Friday into the Saturday. Especially because of the Apple meeting. Especially because of the probably Apple meeting. Probably didn't take Correct. place on a that's Saturday. exactly right. And when you think of the time it takes to record an album... We're talking months and months, and, and Two Virgins was probably pretty much live, laid to tape live. So it's it's not like it took hours and hours to do. It's you know John had his loops running, and she had a mic, and she had a mic, and they went at it. Yep. Um, and it, I think it did go very quickly because as it's closing, he says, "I've had enough of this. Let's stop." It's interesting that that little bit of tape has been cut off of the official releases of Two Virgins ever since it came out on CD. The only place where you can get what was actually in the grooves on the original record is the original pressing and the... uh, the Shamira vinyl pressing, which is kind of odd that they didn't just use the the CD to create it, but they actually went back and, and used the master. And I've always wondered why on earth they're cutting that off. I mean, the whole thing's only about, what, 27 minutes or something? They certainly didn't do it for any reasons of editing or saving space. Well, it, he kind of, you know, is growing tired of what he's doing with Yoko at that point, and she might have seen it kind of as a slight that, you know, we could have done this all night, but John recalled this pivotal meeting with Yoko in his 1970 interview with Jan Wenner for Rolling Stone magazine. When we got back from India, we were talking to each other on the phone. I called her over. It was the middle of the night and Sin was away, and I thought, well, now's the time if I'm going to get to know her anymore. She came to the house, and I didn't know what to do. So we went upstairs to my studio, and I played her all the tapes that I'd made, all this far-out stuff, some comedy stuff and some electronic music. She was suitably impressed, and then she said, well, let's make one ourselves, 
So we made two versions. It was midnight when we started two versions. It was dawn when we finished, and then we made love at dawn. It was very beautiful. In his interview with David Sheff for Playboy ten years later, John added, Even though I didn't realize I was in love with it at the time, I was still thinking it was an artistic collaboration, as it were, you know, a producer and, and interesting art. We were at my, my ex-wife was away somewhere in Italy, and Yoko and I, she came to visit me and we took acid. I was always shy with her and she was shy, and so instead of making love, we went upstairs and made tapes, you know. And we made tape all night, and she was doing her funny voices, and I was pushing all different buttons on my tape recorders and getting the sound effects. This quote could be the source of some of the confusion around the timeline of these events. Cynthia with Julian, her mother Lillian, her aunt Daisy, and Daisy's husband did go on a vacation to Pizarro, Italy, later in May 1968. But this began while John and Paul were in New York between 11th and 16th of May, and ended with Cynthia's return on the 9th of June. This time, as Scott mentioned earlier, Cynthia made sure to forewarn the inhabitants of Kenwood when she would be returning in a telegram sent from Pizarro on the 6th of June. It also could be that John remembered Cynthia flying in from Rome after her Greek holiday. Yoko recalled her version of events in a 2003 interview with Uncut Magazine as follows. So one day, John called me and said, Okay, shall we meet? But by then... We knew how we were feeling, totally, through the letters. It was at night. He said, are you coming? I said, okay. He didn't have the driver that night, uh, so he said, take a taxi. I went there, and he was waiting with the change to pay the taxi. And that night we made it. John said, we can do two things. He was sitting in the living room. One is to sit here and chat, or go up and make music. He didn't mean make music in a funny way. He really meant make music. (laughs) I said, let's make music. I'm not very good at small talk, sitting and chatting. That sounded boring to me. It sounds more exciting to make music. We went in the attic and we made music, and that was two virgins. The first time that Cynthia came, she was with Paddy Boyd's sister and Magic Alex, and there was another person. So Cynthia and Alex and Paddy Boyd's sister and whoever the guy was said they were going to visit, and they came in from the garden side. I immediately tried to sit a little bit further from John, and John said, no, don't worry about that, it's okay. He just grabbed my hand and we were sitting together, kind of thing. He wanted it that way. I don't know why. He wasn't like, my wife is coming, I have to hide the situation. Totally not like that. They stayed a while to say hi and left from the front door, not in a huff. There was an underlying tension, but we were all civil, like the flower children we were. It is unknown who this fourth person was, as only Yoko remembered him being there. Possibly it was their chauffeur or taxi driver. If it had been Donovan, he would surely have a memory of this uncomfortable situation, or been remembered as a witness. Even though Cynthia remembered Donovan and Gypsy Dave traveling with them back to London, it is not known with certainty whether Donovan stayed abroad longer. The day after the incident, Monday the 6th of May, 
London's Evening Standard reported that Donovan had not appeared in Hatfield Magistrates Court that day to face charges of driving without his learner plates. Donovan wrote in by letter to say that they were stolen by fans. The paper reported that Donovan could not appear in person as he was, quote, set in court to be abroad at present, end quote. One further piece of evidence suggests that John and Yoko began their romantic relationship before John left for New York. On the 14th of May, Yoko's banker Alan Morris, of Morris, Wigram & Company LTD, sent a letter to Peter Shotton, care of Apple, 95 Wigmore Street, asking him to clear debts Yoko had on four different accounts, totaling £1,725, 13 shillings, and 8 pence. No small amount. The letter reads... At the request of our customer, we set out below details of the debit balances on her account as at close of business last night. We understand that you have instruction to remit funds to all these accounts in order to place them in credit. We look forward to your remittance in due course. It seems unlikely that John would have agreed to settle Yoko's debts until he was romantically involved with her, especially because he said that, until the night of two virgins, he wasn't sure what the nature of the relationship was, artistic or personal. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a strong, you know, it's it's not a conclusive piece of evidence, but it's a very strong piece of evidence that he really wanted to move forward in a very serious way. Yeah, and again, it's like looking at that date. <laughs> looking at that date, you're like, well, this is before the 19th. One thing that's interesting about the shifting of the date from the traditional now to hopefully the, the May 4th and May 3rd, 4th, will become the traditional date, but uh, it it actually moves the two virgins evening to before when John and Paul went to the U.S. to right. introduce yeah. Apple as opposed to after their visit. Right. Which is so interesting because I don't know about you guys, but it shifts my perspective, right? Now, whenever I see a clip of like the press conference in New York City or the picture of them on The Tonight Show, it's like, wow, he's already recorded two versions. How interesting is that? So it's funny to see how your perspective shifts with little pieces of information. And I think Chip is right. I think once Lewison publishes his third volume, um, this will become the more accepted date. Um He's told me, like, yeah, I think you're probably right <laughs> in, in the 19th. Probably isn't right. So we'll, we'll see what he comes up with. It also changes that more time has passed before they make their first public appearance at the Apple tailoring event, mm -hmm. right? You know, that was just a couple of days late after the original date. But now it's, you know, the end of the month. Right. Right. Which, again, I think makes sense. You know, John was, was impulsive, but I don't know if he was that impulsive. I think he needed a little time to think it through. You know, and then the, the talk with Cynthia between her trips. And um, it, it, I don't think that's something that would have happened in a day or two. That's something that happened over the course of several days. As we did before. Let's go. 
So what are we actually hearing when we listen to unfinished music number one, Two Virgins? In John's second floor music room at Kenwood, he had at least four Brunel Mark V tape machines, a Mellotron Mark II, a Farfisa combo compact organ, an upright piano, and an assortment of guitars and other instruments. I think we should also mention that we get a very nice look at John's record collection. He plays quite a bit of uh, his music, or at least a couple of uh, things, and uh, Chip, Chip was able to dig up what that was exactly. Yep, there's there's anybody that's looked at the, the, the label art on the UK where they list the titles. The US did not list the titles on the, on the sleeve or on the label, but there's a, a track there called Hushabye, Hushabye, and it's because there's this sample from a 78 that John's got spinning, and you could never find any record that was Hushabye, Hushabye, and it turned out that it was really a record called I'd Love to Fall Asleep and Wake Up in My Mammy's Arms, is the official title of Hushabye, Hushabye. Hushabye, hushabye, baby mine, till the sun, honey, one starts to shine. The teardrops on my pillow tell me every morn. My loving Mammy was with me, but she's gone. I'd love to fall asleep and wake up in my Mammy's arms. Just to feel her kissing me. What a wonderful dream that was. Additionally, we can hear Guy Lombardo and his Royal Canadians 1944 recording of a song called Together. We These are likely recordings John knew from his childhood, perhaps favorites of his mother, Julia. And you also get a look at uh, one of John's demo tapes is actually running through the back because there's a bit of a, a rock and roll bit from uh, June of 66 that pops up, but running at a different speed. So, he, you know, he's probably running back and forth between the three and three quarters and the seven and a half IPS. And um, 
so that's kind of neat, you know, that, that he's actually got his own stuff going on in the background and it's recognizable. And I, you know, it's, I think it's a shame that people don't necessarily, I mean, I understand why people don't listen to it, but there's some very typical Lennon wit on there when Yoko's doing her vocalizations and he says, that's right, dear, go ahead and get it, spit it out. Great. That's just such a great little John Lennon line that very few people have actually heard because nobody really listens to it. But one thing I've noticed about John is whenever he was nervous about a situation, he would just go right into his Lennon-esque humor. And so I think it's not only him, you know, showing off to his new girlfriend, but also he's just a little uptight and a little nervous. And he responded with with that kind of wit. Um, and, and you're right. Yoko probably didn't have a handle on his humor at that point and just responded the way she does with like, oh, great, we're creating some art. Let's go do this. There's also the existence of another tape out there that uh, actually turned up on the Lost Lennon tapes. There's a much larger piece of it out there. But, and it's unsure whether or not when that was recorded. And it very well could have been recorded before the, the taping of Two Virgins. Because it is, it's got this sense of a, a very early stages of, of relationship where they're kind of dancing around each other in their dialogue. And so... Um, I don't want to muddy the waters at all, but, you know, there's more than just the, just the two virgins. Oh, I have to explain it to you. Now, all you can do is like, I'm going to just be, you know, um, one term thing, see? So you have to go and do one term, just like one line. Okay. <laughs> give me that look. Now, and I'm going to just go on doing that too. You're not liable to leave the room on you, leave you doing the one note. <laughs> no, don't worry about that. As long right, as you no. do the one note. Okay, I think I've got it up. Yeah, I'll just get my note. And then you get out of your breath. Got it. If you get out of your breath. Yes. And you just take your breath and you go on again. Right. <laughs> Excuse me. Do I wait for you to finish? <laughs> no, you have. No. Oh, I do it with the same time. Right, right, right. Because you have a different... No, excuse us. We saw again. With a one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two. With a one, two, one, two, one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> You're going off. No, you have to I'm stop I'm just in, counting it in. Okay. Right. With a one, two, one, two, one. <laughs> you need enough of that. Well, let's go. Okay. I can't go. Is she? Uh, <laughs> she's having yeah, trouble. Oh, it's not again. Huh? Take that from the top, will you, love? Now look, lean over, you know, a bit more sweep as we come round the side wing. Right, let's start again. I can't even do the one. She's going through that stage. It's all right. We'll wait for her, ladies and gentle spoons. To conclude my discussion with Chip and Scott. I asked them about their methodology when working on Leninology and the decades of research that went into it. It was such a, a, a large project and, and so many different sources of information. You know, like we've said many times before, there were probably more pictures taken of John and Yoko than heads of state at that time. I mean, just about every day was documented, but 
getting the, the actual story straight and massaged into place was the tough part. And then once you had a date, then we had to find a way to cross-reference it with something else to make sure that it, you know, that this thing was bulletproof. I will say, though, that Chip is an outstanding project manager. And we did have, he we had these sort of templates of, chron of chronologies. And, you know, it would say May 68. And we would just dump everything in there. Every single book, every single item, dump it in there and then just compare and contrast right in front of us. And any other piece of information we dump in there. And once you have it all together in one place, it was very easy to see the contradictions and try to sort out where they all came from. So kudos, Chip, for really keeping us organized. Thank you. And part of my methodology on that as well was to not read any books. I didn't look at any books because I didn't want to muddy the waters. I'd go through and look at all the, the, the clippings and Scott would parse out, you know, well, this is kind of an interesting story. Let's see how that fits. Yeah. So, you know, one of us had a clear head and one of us was getting and one of us was muddled everybody else. Yeah. 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 Chip made me read all the books. And so every couple of days I'd say, all right, here's the next three chapters from May's book. Take from it what you will. And then he would take that email and dump it into our document. And it was just all very organized and very easy to parse through. And that that was my favorite part about the entire project was to find any kind of recollection or statement of fact or a, an anecdote or a story and to do the research looking for facts, not anecdotes, and to find out like, yeah, that's right. That's exactly how it happened. And to confirm things that we've just assumed were true all these years or assumed weren't true all these years and to nail it down and say, yep, it was. It's exactly the way it happened. That was very rewarding. We've been talking for half an hour about one date, so I can't even imagine just the scale of of what is it, fourteen years that you that you covered in this book. I mean, kudos to you Thank both. You. Thank you very much. Thanks. And all it took was just one date that we were looking for. It didn't even matter; it'd be an insignificant little date. But when three different pieces of information would come together and give us that date, wow, that was gold. And I'm the only one who got excited about it, <laughs> but just knowing that it took that much effort to nail down one date distinctively, it was, that made it all worth it, for sure. I'm thinking specifically of that uh, the underground TV show from 1972. We got the date exactly, but it took three different sources of information for us to figure out, because this one gave us part of it, this one gave us part of it, and it took all three to nail it down, for sure. That happened more times than I can count. I'm, I'm glad that you said that, because it not everybody reading this may appreciate how much uh, research went into it, especially because I, I understand why you didn't include all the sources uh, because there's just too many. But uh, but you... well, also it, it was not definitely not a cut and paste job. It was it mm. was written from scratch. Um, yeah, we kind of went into it assuming that nothing was true unless we could prove it with a contemporary source. And I would say that probably 95% of all the stuff that's in there can be verified by a contemporary source. And everything else is a very highly educated guess um, based on what we already know. And if we couldn't nail something down to an exact date, we would just kind of slot it into some vague, it was around this time, or just leave it out altogether. So it, uh, I, you know, without hesitation, I can say we can pretty much be trusted for what we've come up with. Nobody's broken it yet. So thank, thank goodness um, it's, it's held up over all these years. Just a couple, yeah, a couple of misspellings, right? That's it. Including one of the persons that I thanked. 
I misspelled her name, which I feel horrible about. Well, thank you very much, Chip and Scott. Okay, great. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Thank you to Olivia Barnes-Brett for her wonderful readings from Cynthia and Jenny Boyd's books. Thank you also to Karen for her reading from Yoko's Mojo interview. And thank you for listening. As this is the last episode of our first season, I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast and the history we have covered so far. If you would like to submit a question or topic for the next season of Give Me Some Truth, you can write to me by email to givemesometruthpod at gmail.com or contact me on Facebook or Instagram at givemesometruthpod. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss a future episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast and want to hear more, please consider leaving a five-star review to help me reach more listeners. Bye for now. Thank you.